I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Welcome to another episode of Serial Streamers. And who am I, you might ask, if you haven't tuned in before? I'm Jamie Rice. I am a full-time podcast creator, content creator. I launched my first podcast, Murderish, about six and a half, seven years ago. And it's just been off to the races since then. So now I do it full time. And I launched Serial Streamers, which is what you're watching and listening to now a few months ago. Serial Streamers is a true crime TV club, kind of like a book club. It's a virtual club for people who are out there binging all the true crime docs. I know I am, a lot of you out there are. So we all gather virtually in my social media comments on Instagram, TikTok, and in YouTube. We watch you know, a true crime documentary together and then we go and we talk about it on my social media comments. If you wanna join us, it's easy. All you have to do is follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Jamie on Air. I'm also on YouTube at Jamie on Air. All right, let me offer just a few trigger warnings, a couple trigger warnings, because this was a pretty dark story true story. There is a lot of talk of sexual assault, specifically rape, as well as um, child molestation. So just, you know, heed my warning before listening or watching. And the documentary that we are talking about is one that people were DMing me like crazy to cover for serial streamers. And that is American Nightmare on Netflix. I know I'm a little late to the party. A lot of people have already watched this. I've seen a lot of the comments on social media. Mostly everybody is just like angry after watching it. And I didn't really know why, because I, I didn't know anything about this story before I watched this documentary. And they're just kind of like flabbergasted at this. Just it's, 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 a, it's a wild story. So let's get into it. All of this takes place for the most part on Mare Island in Vallejo, California. Vallejo, California is in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've never been there, but it looks like a nice place. Now, on March 23rd of 2015, a 911 call is made by a man speaking very calmly, which was a little surprising to hear because you would think in the situation that he was in, he would be completely worked up and emotional, but we're going to find out later why he wasn't really so worked up. But very calmly, he says to the 911 operator, he says, my girlfriend got kidnapped last night. And so you're just kind of like, okay, whoa, we're in for a wild ride here. He goes on to say calmly, someone came into our house, tied us up and gave us sedatives. Okay. The story's getting more and more wild. 
Apparently, the man and his girlfriend at the time, Denise Huskins, were hanging out at his place in Vallejo, California. She brought over pizza and beer and they were watching TV, you know, having a good night, although he did admit they had some issues in their relationship, which we'll get into. Denise Huskins was a blonde woman, kind of an all-American girl, as they describe her in the documentary. She grew up in Huntington Beach, California. That is a really cool beach town uh, about an hour from where I live in Los Angeles. I think she was 30 years old at the time. Could be wrong, but I think Denise Huskins was about 30 years old at the time. All of this went down, and she was also a doctor of physical therapy. Aaron Quinn, the man who made the 911 call to report that Denise had been abducted, was also 30 years old at the time. He was described as a good kid. He was captain of the football team when he was younger, broke a lot of girls' hearts. He's a handsome man. They're both a very attractive couple. And he also worked as a physical therapist. And in fact, Denise and Aaron worked at the same exact hospital in the same exact physical therapy unit, and that is where they met. The next day after his girlfriend was apparently abducted, Aaron comes into the police department and they question him for many, many, many hours. And you see footage of this in the documentary. And Detective Matt Mustard, which... We're going to call him Matt Mustard Breath because he turns out to be a real turd. Pardon the pun. And he tells Aaron initially, okay, you're being treated as a victim, not a suspect. Maybe to put Aaron at ease so that he would tell him the full story. And Aaron does. So Aaron's story goes like this. He says that the intruder called Aaron by name, which is just bizarre. You know, so obviously this is somebody who knows or knows of Aaron if the story is true. And he, Aaron says the voice, the man's voice says, I'm going to take your blood pressure at some point. He was also instructed to take sedatives. And it seems like the intruder was a little bit, I don't want to say nice, but not super aggressive with Aaron and Denise, his girlfriend. Just sort of like calm and nice, like, okay, now I'm going to do this. Now you're going to do this. And now I'm going to do this. Just very odd. And this is where it gets really weird. Aaron tells a detective must be a turd that the intruders were wearing wetsuits, which is who wears wetsuits to come in and rob you and abduct your girlfriend. But that's what he says. And he's talking about this story as if there's more than one intruder. So you get the idea that this was a group of people who came in or a couple people, a couple intruders who, who came in. And that's what I thought kind of all along. We would find out different later. Aaron says the abductors separated him and Denise. They put them in separate rooms. And then the intruder says, oh, fuck, this was intended for Andrea. Now, according to Aaron, he tells the detective, Andrea is my ex-fiance. And I think he said that Andrea had lived with him for a time. If I'm not mistaken, I didn't go back and rewind it, but I think he said Andrea had lived with him at a time. And apparently the intruders are like, oh, fuck, we've got the wrong victim. We were here for Andrea. But the intruders decide to take Denise anyway, even though she apparently was not their intended target. So they say, well, we're going to take Denise anyway, and we want you to pay us $15,000 to get Denise back. Aaron tells the detective that the intruders installed a camera in his bedroom so that they can watch his every move. And if he even steps once out of view, they'll hurt Denise. Aaron says the sedatives finally kick in and he passes out after hearing them, the intruders drive away with Denise. So he hears a car thinking, okay, they drove away with Denise. And then he says he passes out from the sedatives. He wakes up the next morning groggy and is like, oh my God, what happened? And that's when he realizes Denise is gone and there's red tape around his bed or near his bed. And this is apparently where the area in which the intruders want him, the abductors, I should say, want him to stay so that they can see him on camera at all times. So the morning after the sedatives are wearing off, Aaron sees the red tape. He gets an email from the abductors and they say, we want $15,000 in order to release Denise. After calling his bank, Aaron tells the abductors, I can advance $3,500. But after that, he gets no response from the abductors, which must have been just truly frightening for him. And so he hesitates because he knows that the cameras are watching him, but he says, 
basically to himself, like, fuck it, I'm going to call 911 and get some help. And that's exactly what he does. And then you hear that 911 call where he calls and he's so calm. My girlfriend got abducted last night. But it's like we find out if the sedative story is true, he was still high on sedatives. Like he was groggy. So maybe that's why he sounded so calm in the 911 call. Now, in the interrogation, um, you know, the detective, uh, must heard. He starts asking him, you know, was there any, you know, was the door broken in? Were there any broken windows? And Aaron's like, no. So essentially they find out there was no forced entry into his home, which is odd. Aaron basically goes over the night. He says, you know, Denise came over with pizza. We had beer and cocktails. We did have some relationship issues because Aaron's ex-fiance, Andrea, also worked at that same physical therapy unit where Denise and Aaron worked. So the three of them all worked together there together. I mean, that had to be a bit of a shit show and a little bit of a mind fuck for Denise. I mean, that would cause some insecurities, I think, for anybody if your ex-fiance is working where you and your now boyfriend also work. It's just odd. And also it comes out, there's my dog. And also it comes out that Aaron still had feelings for Andrea. Apparently, Andrea had cheated on him the year prior to the abduction. That's what ended their relationship. And Aaron says he felt deep rejection over it, and he basically wanted her back. So there were some issues in Denise and Aaron's relationship because of his, you know, connection to Andrea, his ex-fiance. So then Andrea, the ex-fiance, comes in. She's questioned by police. And she tells them that Aaron would come into her office sometimes, try to hug and kiss her. She would let him know, like, hey, this is not appropriate. And when asked, you know, Andrea says, yeah, I think that Aaron would be open to the idea of us getting back together. Like, he still had feelings for her. So it's at this point the detectives are thinking, like, okay, dude, your story is really far-fetched and very elaborate. Like, all these details, the wetsuits, the sedatives— at one point, he says they put goggles on him and or Denise, and then he they put headphones on Aaron and played a certain type of music for him to listen to, maybe so he couldn't hear what was going on with Denise. I mean, it was all very, very strange. And it was a bit, it was, it was far-fetched, but the detectives are not believing him. And in fact, a lot of people would end up not believing him. The detective at this point confronts Aaron. And he basically accuses him. He goes in hard on Aaron. And he's like, look, you killed her. There's blood in your house. You did this. And he just goes in hard. Like, there's a turn at this point in the interrogation. And Aaron continues to deny it. And Aaron is very cooperative, so much so that he gives DNA samples. He gives uh, his fingerprints. He submits to a lie detector test when the FBI is called in. And all I keep thinking is, where the F is Aaron's lawyer? Aaron needs a lawyer. This is the exact wrong thing to do. And all I keep thinking at this point is, where the F is Aaron's lawyer? This is the exact Thing that you don't want to do when there's a murder, an abduction, a serious crime, and you get called in for questioning, even if they tell you, hey, we're just looking at you as a victim, tell us what you know, it is, it is best to get a lawyer. I cannot stress that enough. Get a lawyer. But a lot of innocent people, I mean, I can totally put myself in their shoes. Like they just go in and they're like, well, I have nothing to hide. Of course, I want to tell police everything because they're on my side. They want to catch the bad guy. Let me just spill my guts and tell them everything. But then what starts to happen is that they need to close a case, for example, or you're the last person to see the girl who got abducted. Oh, and you're also her current love interest. I mean, we all know the husband did it, right? I mean, it's just. So you start being looked at as a suspect and then you don't have a lawyer and you've said some, you know, all these words over 18 hours that can be used against you. You just need a lawyer. But anyway, he does get a lawyer at a certain point. So the FBI agent proceeds to tell Aaron after the lie detector test, you failed this test. I have no doubt you failed this test. So he's under the impression, well, fuck, I just failed this polygraph test, but I, he's, you know, still maintains his innocence. He's like, I didn't do this. And this is when you see Aaron start to break down mentally. He's been questioned for many, many, many hours by detectives, by the FBI. He does the test. Now he failed the test. Like he is just like, I didn't do this. And he starts crying. They leave him in the room alone. 
phone and you see the footage of him just kind of crumbling, like what is going on, basically starting to lose his mind. And I think I would too. He finally asks for a lawyer and that's when the FBI agent is stopped dead in his tracks. And so Dan Russo is going to be the defense attorney for Aaron. And he seems like a very proficient attorney by the way he speaks. I don't know how experienced he is, but he did seem to me came off as somebody who knows what the heck he's doing. So like I said, you know, Aaron was super cooperative. He gave fingerprints, submitted to a lie detector test, gave DNA sample, like everything. There's nothing more he could have done to be, you know, cooperative. But his story was outlandish. It was maybe hard to for some people to believe, but at the same time, he's giving these weird details that it's like, how could somebody make that up? I guess they could, but like the wetsuits, the sedatives, the blood pressure, the goggles, the music, like they knew his name. Oh, this is intended for Andrea, not Denise. Like it was all just very strange. 31 hours after Denise's abduction, there's an audio file that's received by an investigative reporter. And it's Denise. It's definitely Denise. She says very calmly, mind you, she says, hi, I'm Denise Huskins. I'm kidnapped, but otherwise I'm fine. She's very calm, very nonchalant. And again, all you can think about is why is everybody so freaking calm? You know, but she sounds just like very nonchalant in the tapes, but it's very clear that it's her. And that's because the abductors had her give information that only people close to her would know. Like she says something like my first concert was blink 182. And then she talks about a current event. I think there was like a plane or a helicopter crash somewhere that was hitting the news. And she talks about that. And it's like, okay, so she must be alive at least at the time of this recording, because she's talking about a very current event. So this is just shocking. So the reporter sends the audio file to the Vallejo PD. So once it's confirmed that Denise is actually still alive, you know, Detective Mustard Breath begins questioning Denise's mother, trying to dig up dirt on Denise, asking about her past. And so the mother tells him, well, I do recall that Denise was molested as a child. And fucking mustard breath says, you're not going to believe, I, I could not believe he said this. He proceeds to say to Denise's mother, well, sometimes women who've been sexually abused will pretend to have it uh, happen again to relive the thrill of it. That is the dumbest thing and most disgusting thing I have ever heard. There is no thrill in rape. There is no thrill in sexual assault. There is no thrill in molestation, period. It is a traumatic event that the victim never wanted nor asked for. So don't fucking say to relive the thrill of anything. You're disgusting. Go educate yourself before you enter into law enforcement and take an oath to protect people, to protect women, to protect people who've gone through these situations. And then maybe you'll understand that there is no thrill in sexual assault. I just, I could not believe. He should have been disciplined just for that statement. He, I just, there are no words to describe how much I hate this guy. And you know, Detective Mustard is just pissed that his murder theory wasn't correct because here he is going in hard on Aaron like, bro, I don't believe you. You lied. You killed her. Where is she? Well, when we find out that Denise is actually still alive, he's like, well, shit, now I guess I got to turn my sights on Denise and make her the villain. So then that's exactly what he does. And he's trying to dig up dirt on Denise so he can make her the bad guy instead of actually like doing his job and understanding that, hey, I may have been wrong in my initial theory about Aaron killing Denise. That's okay. Start from scratch. Take the new information you just got that Denise is still alive and just go and try to solve this case. Don't re-victimize Denise who had trauma, sexual trauma in her past by telling her mother that she's reliving the thrill of it. On March 25th of 2015, two days after Denise's abduction, Denise's father calls 911, and you can hear part of the call on this documentary. 
And he says, I just got a call from Denise and it's definitely her. And she's walking over to my house right now as we speak in Huntington Beach. And you see footage of Denise with these big sunglasses on carrying like a big duffel bag full of something. I think she's wearing sweats and she's walking toward her dad's house on this random street in Huntington Beach. It's her and she's safe. And the news coverage just goes crazy, right? Everyone is just so confused. Why did the abductors let Denise go? Why, what it, why'd they let her go in Huntington Beach and not Vallejo where she was abducted? What is going on? And initially, Denise isn't really speaking with police and this really pisses them off. But you know what? Fuck them. I'm sorry, Denise, you know, we're going to find out that she really went through a lot in this whole ordeal. And it's going to make a lot of sense why she wasn't really speaking to police at first. Well, they're all pissed off because they're like, how dare her not come and speak to us immediately? And basically, you know, the detectives hold this press conference where, you know, they say, uh, or at least the police department, I don't know if it was a detective, but they basically accuse Aaron and Denise of squandering precious resources in this press conference, basically saying these guys are lying. Okay. This never happened to them. And oh, now Denise is fine. This, you know, none of this is true. And here they had us looking for her for two days. And so basically the media starts calling it a hoax, a kidnapping hoax. They start comparing it to the movie Gone Girl because there are a lot of parallels between Aaron and Denise's story and the movie. Even the characters in the movie look a lot like Aaron and Denise. So they're calling it the Gone Girl case. They're calling it the kidnapping hoax. You know, here you have law enforcement in a in a press conference saying that these two are squandering precious resources. So the whole world does not believe them. Okay, they think it's just all a hoax. And so they start to come up with these theories like, you know, maybe Denise had previously caught Aaron texting his ex, Andrea. Maybe she was angry over that and she wanted some attention. So this was her way to get back at Aaron. So she fakes her own disappearance. But then it's like, well, why was Aaron in on it? Like, why is Aaron ter- telling police like, hey, she was actually abducted? It, you know, is she, and people are like, oh, is Denise the real life gone girl? You know how the media just loves to make everything like a Hollywood movie? Like they just love to make it so overblown and so Hollywood so that they can get people to tune into their news program and read their articles. And I just, it was just chaos. Uh, surrounding Denise and Aaron, and they were uncertain of whether they were going to get fired, what their job status was, because now they're looked at as these criminals who faked this huge, you know, abduction story. So Denise, here's her side of the story. She says it went down like this. She says March 23rd, uh, 2015, she was abducted. She starts talking about the goggles, the sedatives, the everything. A lot of her story is matching what Aaron had previously told law enforcement. She says she was placed inside of the trunk of a car. She was um, wearing black, you know, really tight uh, blacked out swim goggles on her eyes. Uh, Her hands were tied behind her back. She was drugged. She was hyperventilating and terrified. She says at some point the abductors switched cars. She heard the rev of the car engine. And to her, she said specifically, it sounded like a Mustang. And that'll be important later. She says she ends up at a house somewhere unknown. But she says, I don't know if she said she smelled a lot of trees or she could sense that the there were a lot of trees. Wherever she was being held captive, there were a lot of trees. She's describing this for the documentary. The abductor, just like they told Aaron, tells Denise, this wasn't meant for you. This was meant for Aaron's ex, Andrea. The abductor goes on to tell Denise that uh, he's part of a black market company that kidnaps people for money. And the abductor, again, you get the sense that he was kind of like nice to her for the most part. And I'm I'm using that term loosely because this guy's a real piece of shit, we're going to find out. So he's not a nice guy at all. But he wasn't aggressive with her. He wasn't overtly mean to her. And then at some point, Denise says that the abductor tells her, 
we have a problem. He says, we don't have any collateral to ensure that you won't speak with police. So one of us, again, he's talking in plural, you know, one of us is going to have sex with you. We're going to have to have sex with you, which AKA that's rape. But he describes it as one of us is going to have sex with you. And it's going to be recorded because if you speak with police, we're going to go and uh, spread it all over the internet. The abductor does rape Denise. And then he allows her to take a shower. And he tells Denise that they ended up losing contact with Aaron. They're no longer in contact with Aaron, where, you know, at this point, she must have felt just completely helpless, um, like she was probably never going to be found. And he tells her that his associates are coming to the house. And he says, but they're not as nice as I am. And she does say, Denise says she does at one point hear a conversation between her abductor and his associates. And she says it sounds somewhat heated. Then the abductor tells uh, Denise that she needs to record a proof of life audio and she needs to give a current event. And she's under sedatives at the time. So that explains why when they play that proof-of-life audio in the documentary, she sounds so calm, but that makes perfect sense. When you are sedated, you don't show all the emotion you normally would. You are very calm and out of it. Now, the abductor tells Denise, you know, listen, my associates told me that I'm going to have to have sex with you again, aka this is actually rape, let's call it what it is, because the footage yesterday wasn't good enough. He says, uh, this, you know, encounter between us needs to look consensual, needs to look like we're in a relationship and like we're having an affair. Okay. You're cheating on Aaron with me essentially. And you know, all this was, all this was, I mean, we don't know it at the time. I'm sure Denise doesn't know it at the time. All this was, was this perpetrator, this disgusting perpetrator, you know, giving excuses to act out his six sexual proclivities. That's all it was. Oh, I need to have sex with you again. I need to assault you again, basically, um, because I want to. But he didn't want to tell her that. He tells her, oh, we need better footage. It needs to look like this. Screw you. Like, I just, ugh, disgusting. In the middle of the night, Denise says that the abductor shows her a video of her father being emotional in a news, um, news coverage video. And, you know, she gets very emotional when she sees it. And then the abductor says it's time to go home. So apparently he's going to be driving her home at this point. She says he drives her to her family home in Huntington beach, which is her father's house. And because apparently he says there's just too much, you know, police activity in Vallejo. So I'm going to have to drop you off in Huntington Beach. He gives her more sedatives. And before letting Denise go in Huntington Beach, the abductor tells her there are two things that you absolutely cannot say. Number one, you cannot say that any of us are in the military. And you also cannot say that we had sex. And if you do, we'll be watching you. And it's not just you, it's your family that will come after. So she's scared shitless, obviously, as anybody would be, but he does let her go. And then you see that footage of her walking up her father's street and to her father's house. So as the car drives off, Denise peels the tape uh, off of her eyes, looks around. She starts walking toward her father's house. Her father's not home at the time, but a neighbor is, and the neighbor helps her out. And the media just swarms the area. There's law enforcement. There's just everything. Cameras everywhere. News copters. You can hear them circling. And the police questioned Denise. And, you know, when they first ask her, were you, I don't know how they put it or the terms they use, but like, were you sexually assaulted? She says no, because she's absolutely afraid of the abductor's threat to harm her and her family. So she says no at first. But she starts feeling uneasy about the way law enforcement is treating her and questioning her. She starts to feel kind of like unsafe, probably, like you're not believing me kind of deal. Denise gets a hold of a man named Doug Rappaport, and he is a San Francisco-based defense attorney. And good for her getting an attorney early on. Um, He tells her, do not speak to the police anymore. 
stop talking and I need you to get on a plane to San Francisco. So that's what she does. Meanwhile, the media is reporting this as a kidnapping hoax and the Vallejo PD are just throwing Denise under the bus. They're angry with her and they're probably even more angry because she stops talking to them. They're almost like, how dare her? And then they go and they have this really angry, vengeful press conference where they're like, this is a hoax. Or they say, oh, they're squandering precious resources. And the guy, I think his last name is Park. He's part of the police department. He just looks so vengeful toward Denise in this press conference. So Denise gets to San Francisco to her attorney. She has a meeting with him and she tells Rappaport everything, even about the rapes, even though she was under a threat by her abductor, she tells him everything. And he tells her, you need to do a sexual assault exam right away. Problem is that the Vallejo PD are the ones who have to give her the exam and she's not very trusting of them, or at least she just feels unsafe with them based on the way that they're treating her, uh, both in person and in this press conference, you know, and she's also afraid of the threats made by her abductors. But she eventually relents and she agrees to get the SART, the sexual assault exam. And when she gets back to Vallejo, the police department, of course, because they're a bunch of egotistical, arrogant assholes, they demand that she needs to give them a statement before they're going to give her the exam. They're like, no, you need to talk to us before we give you this exam. And it's like, how dare you? How dare you? If a woman is saying, I was raped, I was sexually assaulted, and they also know time is of the essence to get this exam so that they can get critical information and data from this exam. But no, they are like, no, you're going to talk to us before. It's like they're holding this over her head and she relents and she ends up talking to the police department again before she's given this exam. And of course, it's Detective Matt must be a turd who goes and questions her. And it's like, oh, God, of all detectives, why this guy? But anyway... She's very on guard with him because they've been accusing her publicly of lying all along. But she says, I'm ready to tell them everything. Like, I just want this ordeal behind me. So she tells them everything. But she has her lawyer right next to her, Doug Rappaport, and good for her. She says, you know, she talks about the bright lights that were shined on her, you know, in during the abduction, gives all the details of the abductor's physical description from when she was held captive. She describes how many turns she thought there were to get to the captive house. She gives all the disturbing uh, details of the sexual assaults by the abductor. She tells them everything. But the defense attorney, Rappaport, can see that Mustard isn't believing Denise. Surprise, surprise. Meanwhile, Denise's defense team contacts Aaron, her boyfriend, and says that everything she's telling police right now, this very moment, is matching what he also told police. So her defense team is giving Aaron that confirmation of like, don't worry, her story's matching what you said. But mind you, Denise and Aaron have not been able to speak with each other or see each other since she was released by the abductor. So it's just they haven't seen or spoken to each other. So they didn't have time or the ability to corroborate their stories, but their stories are matching. Now, after the sexual assault exam, they do find out that there are some micro lesions in Denise's cervix, which is an indicator that she's had intercourse within the last two days. So the FBI questions Denise again. They tell her there are inconsistencies in your story. And they go, you know, is there anything you want to change at this point about your story? Kind of like giving her another chance to tell the truth. And she's like, uh, no, like this is my story. And the defense attorney, you know, tells the FBI there has not been one inconsistency in Denise's story. You're wrong. Like she is telling the story exactly as she's told it before. And then the, the FBI apparently responds to the defense attorney. Well, have you seen the movie Gone Girl? So they're just, they're using this movie as if like Denise watched the goddamn movie and then like made herself Gone Girl, essentially. Denise and Aaron finally do get to see each other. And Denise is really afraid, she says in the documentary, that, you know, he's going to see her differently due to her being raped by 
the abductor. And that's really sad, but I can understand, I think, as a woman, not wanting your partner to see you differently because you've been through something like that. Sucks that she even has to even worry about that. And right about now in the documentary, I'm thinking, but why did they want to kidnap Andrea? And I have some theories on that. I'll share it, you know, in my final thoughts at the end of this. But, you know, I'm also thinking like, is Andrea scared or taking any precautions during this time? Because the abductor has not been caught and he's now apparently told Aaron and Denise, like, look, we were actually after Andrea. So is she taking precautions during this time? Like, we don't really get to hear much from Andrea or how she was feeling during all this. On March 28th, 2015, uh, the investigative reporter, the same one who got that audio file of proof of life for Denise, he gets an email and it is from the abductors. And it says, we have entered many homes on Mare Island. The abductor also sent photos attached to the email of some of the items that appeared to be, like he was showing evidence. Like basically this is the abductor going, yeah, this story is true. You need to believe Denise and Aaron. This did happen. Oh, and let me show you photos of proof that this happened. One of the photos he sent appeared to be a flashlight taped to something which looks like a gun. And again, basically this is the abductor look, you know, watching the news seeing that nobody's believing Denise and Aaron and, and the abductor is like, uh, yeah, this happened. We're real. The email from the abductors mentions a white Mustang, which is interesting because Denise says she heard the rev of an engine when she was in the trunk and it sounded like a Mustang. And in the email, the abductor's mentioning a Mustang. So this is interesting. And there are also photos attached to the email uh, that the, there's photos of the area where Denise was taken and they match the description that Denise gave law enforcement of where she thinks she was held. And apparently police are not doing anything after receiving the, you know, the abductor's email, these photos, like it seems like nothing is happening. Like they're not even getting excited, like, ooh, this is a really big break in the case. And the investigative reporters baffled. He's like, well, this should have been a big deal to them. More emails are coming into this investigative reporter from the abductors. And the abductors are referring to themselves as three acquaintances and college graduates. So they're now giving specific information about who they are. And the abductors say, if police don't give a full and unequivocal apology, basically for not believing Denise and Aaron within 24 hours, we're going to do this again. And sure enough, 10 weeks after Denise's abduction on June 5th of 2015, another break-in happens, this time in Dublin, California. You hear a woman on a 911 call, and again, she sounds very calm. To me, she sounds very calm for the situation. So maybe she was given sedatives as well. But the woman says, my husband is fighting with them. They have our daughter. Uh, there was a laser light pointed at us. So her story is sounding very much like Denise and Aaron's story. The daughter, thankfully, everybody in the family ends up being safe, including the daughter, although the father did sustain some bloody injuries during his struggle with the attempted abductor or intruder. And apparently the intruder ran away, but left a cell phone behind. And this is what breaks many cases wide open. Law enforcement is able to track down the cell phone owner. They call the phone number, a woman answers. And she says, oh, yes, this is my son's cell phone. Well, the law enforcement is like, well, who's your son? They find out her son is Matthew Muller, date of birth, March 27th, 1977. He's a former Marine, Harvard Law graduate. And also Matthew Muller is a suspect in previous attempted rapes and sexual batteries. So now they've put a name to somebody who, you know, definitely tried to break in and, you know, abduct these people's daughter. Uh, luckily, the father was able to fight him off. Okay. So police don't want to tip off the mom that they're like looking for this guy or want to find this guy. So they innocently ask her, oh, well, we just want to get his phone back to him. Do you happen to know where he is at this very moment? She's like, oh yeah, he's at my cabin in South Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe has a lot of trees. 
So now everything's starting to come together. And this matches Denise's account of smelling a lot of trees or feeling like there were a lot of trees when she got out of the trunk of that car, the abductor's car. And law enforcement quickly closes in on this South uh, Lake Tahoe cabin. It was a huge mess, smelled disgusting. They find zip ties and duct tape. They find a toy gun painted with a laser attached. The windows at the house were covered, and Denise had previously described that where she was held captive, the windows were covered. They find a syringe, a NyQuil bottle, and a stolen white Mustang. Oh, and inside the Mustang, they find Matthew Muller's driver's license, and they find a blow-up doll in the trunk, which, I'm sorry, but a blow-up doll is always going to be creepy. I mean, it is, oh, that... What are you doing? What are you doing with this blow up doll? So they find all this like very suspicious stuff. And they also find goggles inside the Mustang, as well as a single strand of blonde hair attached to the goggles. Law enforcement also pulls up the GPS inside the Mustang to kind of see where Matthew Muller had been driving. One of the areas that came up was Huntington Beach. This is where Denise grew up, and this is where Denise was dropped off by her abductor to walk over to her father's house. So things are starting to come together. Meanwhile, Denise is getting horrific direct messages, blaming her for everything, because of course the media and law enforcement have been blaming her for being a liar and causing all this uproar in Vallejo, you know, when, you know... To them, nothing happened but a hoax. So she, people are like giving her death threats. I mean, her life has been completely turned upside down over this whole thing. So at some point, Denise and Aaron, they find out that the lead case agent in their case, the Gone Girl case, David Sesma, used to date Aaron's ex, Andrea. And this is a huge conflict of interest. If this guy, Sesma, used to date... Andrea, who's sort of kind of involved in this case, well, is involved in this case because she was the intended target. And she's also the ex-fiance of the apparent victim in this case. I, I would imagine that's a huge conflict of interest to have him working this case, to be in charge of anything. He should have been removed. And they're thinking, you know, Denise and Aaron, they're like, well, maybe this is the reason why our case is not being investigated. Maybe this is why we're being ignored. Maybe this is why we're not being believed. Like maybe Sesma has an ax to grind against me because I used to be with Andrea. Like who knows? But they're just kind of like, ugh. That's a weird fact, right? And he should have been removed from the case, but he wasn't. Meanwhile, detectives in, in uh, South Lake Tahoe, they're trying to figure out who this blonde hair belonged to because, you know, the, all these items are suspicious, including the goggles. Well, there's a blonde hair and the suspect, you know, Matthew Muller does not have blonde hair. He has dark brown hair. If they can find out who this blonde hair belongs to, maybe they can find out more about this case, like who the victims were. So they obviously, you know, these detectives in South Lake Tahoe, they obviously have not connected Matthew Muller's arrest in South Lake Tahoe to the Gone Girl case in Vallejo, California. So the, the two cases have not been connected just yet. I found it very interesting that Muller often had a change of heart and decided not to rape his victims, even though he would go into people's homes intending to do that. Victims were able to talk him out of it. Uh, one victim, she pleaded with him and she said, I've been assaulted before. Please don't do this. And he changed his mind and didn't do it. And he even went so far as to advise her like, hey, maybe you should get a dog that'll keep you safe. I found that interesting. And Mueller, you know, we're going to find out later that Mueller is connected to Denise and Aaron's Gone Girl case. But you know, he was also, he treated his victims very kind of lightly, if you will. I can't think of a better word. He's a terrible, disgusting person. Do not get me wrong. But he would inform them of things that he was going to do to them before he did it. He wouldn't just do it. He would say something like, well, unfortunately, now I'm going to have to rape you. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Instead of just doing it and not to say that that makes it any better. It doesn't. I just find it interesting. I think it tells us something about his psyche and I can't go any further than that because I'm not a psych expert, but I just found it very interesting how he would sort of like tell people, okay, now you're going to drink these sedatives. Now I'm going to take your blood pressure. Oh, I have bad news. I'm going to have to have sex with you, which of course is a rape, but it was just, uh, his demeanors just confused me. There's a running theme of, you know, police not believing or female victims of rape. And Denise says that she was molested at the age of 12. Then again, at the age of 19, at the age of 19, she did decide to go to authorities. But when she did, basically the authorities said, well, it's your word against his. They didn't really take her seriously. They didn't really do much of anything about this. They're like, well, almost like encouraging her to just go away with her story. And that is really, really a shame. That needs to stop. Women need to be believed. If a woman comes in and I get it, you know, maybe these law enforcement individuals, you know, they just, they just want some hard proof of like, well, if we don't have hard proof, this is going to be a really hard case to, to solve. So let's just encourage these victims to just kind of walk out of here and act like nothing happened. I don't really know what goes through their heads, but you need to be educated on sexual assault because it can look a million different ways. In fact, there's not always injury that's caused in a sexual assault. So there isn't always going to be this hard proof most often, there are no witnesses to this, okay, because that's by design. So women need to be believed. It's going to be based on circumstantial evidence. It's going to be based on the woman's word and maybe other factors, but victims of sexual assault need to be believed, and they need to stop being looked at with side eye, and they need to stop being looked at as if, hey, you're making my job really hard because I don't have any you know, uh, physical, you know, hard physical evidence to show that you were assaulted. So how am I going to work this case? Well, that's not her, his or her problem. Okay. Do your job. And it's probably going to be based mostly on circumstantial evidence, but do your job. Meanwhile, there's this dogged female detective. I think her name is Missy or Misty from South Lake Tahoe. Uh, and she is just obsessed with finding out who this blonde hair on the goggles belonged to. And, you know, with that, uh, with knowledge that the white Mustang was stolen from Vallejo, she picks up the phone and calls Vallejo PD. And they proceed to ask her, well, have you heard of the Mare Island Creeper case? Which she hasn't. And apparently in 2014, the year prior to Denise Huskins' abduction, I guess a bunch of students were being terrorized by a peeper in their window, which by the way, we need to change the name to something more serious. The word peeper or peeping Tom isn't harsh enough. It makes it seem like, oh, he's just kind of like looking in. He's not doing anything. No, this is very alarming behavior. Ask any expert who knows anything about this stuff, and they will tell you that a peeping Tom is, that person's behavior is very likely going to escalate into something much more serious than just peeping in on you. So I hate that they call it a peeper or a peeping Tom because it just doesn't sound serious enough. I think we need to like find another name. Anyway, the Mare Island Creeper was looking in on students in their windows. And a couple of students apparently followed this man home 
And they ended up finding out where he lived on Mare Island. And they also found out that he's ex-military and a Harvard graduate. So now everything's starting to tie together, right? The Gone Girl case to the the, the guy they arrested in South Lake Tahoe, uh, Matthew Moeller, to this Mare Island creeper being ex-military Harvard grad, which Matthew Muller was. A lot of this is tying together now. And this female detective, Missy or Misty, she's like, holy shit, the Mare Island creeper is Matthew Muller, the same man we arrested in that dingy cabin in South Lake Tahoe. And apparently in March 2015, the Mare Island creeper incidents stop. And the Vallejo Police Department tells Missy or Misty, I'm sorry, I didn't catch her name, but this female detective that the Mare Island Creeper cases stopped right around the time the Gone Girl case happened. And Missy or Misty, she has no knowledge of the Gone Girl case. So of course she Googles it. She looks it up and she sees that the victim, Denise Huskins in the Gone Girl case has blonde hair. And She has ties to Huntington Beach and Huntington Beach is a city that came up on the white Mustangs GPS system. So she is really starting to put all the puzzle pieces together and she's flabbergasted. She calls the Vallejo PD back. She's excited because she's like, look, we're going to get this gone girls case in Vallejo solved. I've got really good information for you, but she calls the Vallejo PD repeatedly and nobody answers. And she's like, what the fuck is going on? Why are you not answering your phone? Uh, She continues calling relentlessly and good on her for doing this. Finally, a detective answers and he tells her that, look, the Gone Girl case is in the FBI's hand and he gives her David Cessna's contact information. And again, David Cessna is the guy who used to date uh, Andrea, which is Aaron's ex. So just very incestuous. And Missy or Misty, um, she informs Sesma uh, that she has a suspect in custody. His name is Matthew Muller, and he definitely matches the potential suspect in Sesma's case, the Gone Girl case. But very nonchalantly, Sesma tells Misty or Missy, okay, go ahead and send me what you've got and we'll take a look. And she's like, WTF. Why is this guy like not excited that I'm about to help him solve his gone girl case? So she describes him as being very kind of like, okay, send over what you got. We'll look at it. And then there's a meeting arranged between South Lake Tahoe Police Department and the FBI for the South Lake Tahoe PD to show them all the evidence they uncovered pertaining to Matthew Muller. And um, the FBI looks absolutely shocked. They're like, uh, oh, shit, we may have gotten this whole thing wrong. This may not be a hoax like we've been telling everybody. Uh, Aaron and Denise uh, might be telling the truth about this wild story they told. The U.S. attorney ends up calling Denise Huskins' attorney and says, we've got a man in custody. They're talking about Matthew Muller. Uh, who may be the perpetrator in Denise and Aaron's case. And the media goes wild again because this is a huge break in the Gone Girl case. And Matthew Muller's face is plastered all over, you know, the news media, on TV. Everybody sees him for the first time uh, as the suspect in the Gone Girl case. And Muller apparently was a research assistant at Harvard Law School. After his arrest, he told authorities that he suffered from bipolar disorder as well as Gulf War illness. Apparently, he was an immigration lawyer in San Francisco, but he ended up being disbarred for lying to a client. And Denise hears this news coverage and she sees Muller on TV speaking to the media in his own case, and she knows that that is her abductor. She knows it's him by his cadence, the way he moves, the way he talks. And she's just probably got chills watching him on TV and seeing like, wow, that is my abductor. That is my rapist. She just has to be in complete shock. Now, Denise Huskins' attorney and Denise and Aaron, they get their hands on this affidavit And it spells out law enforcement's actions or inaction in Denise's case. 
And it becomes very clear that there were many missteps in their investigation or lack thereof. For example, the FBI agent told Aaron very forcefully, you failed this polygraph, when in reality, it was inconclusive. And they were just trying to break Aaron down, you know, so they lied to him. But also a huge misstep was just not believing Denise or Aaron and then therefore not investigating, not taking any steps to understand whether this was a lie or not a lie. They just really didn't do anything other than accuse Denise and Aaron of being you know, all of this being a hoax and being a couple of liars. So there were many missteps. Also in the affidavit, Denise's SART exam, the sexual assault exam states there was no physical evidence of non-consensual sex. But Denise points out not every sexual assault causes damage or injury. Okay. Like that, that you have to go a step further just because you're saying there's no physical evidence doesn't mean there isn't evidence. There was evidence. There were micro lesions on her cervix, which is an indicator that she had sex within the last two days that she had intercourse. And she says, you know, that her abductor raped her twice. So that does match up with her story, but they wanted to believe their own narrative, which was since there's really no damage or whatever the you know the, however they uh interpreted her sart exam they just believed what they wanted to believe which wasn't the actual truth and also denise points out that the fbi should know this the fbi they've probably worked so many sexual assault cases and they should know that there isn't always damage or substantial damage or injury to a person's body after they've been sexually assaulted. You can't just write off her claims and her case altogether because they're, it's not what you want to see on this report. And shockingly, they also find out from this affidavit that Aaron had told authorities that these abductors are going to be contacting me by phone. Okay. So what does law enforcement do? They put his phone on airplane mode so that no activity could come through. And in fact, they missed two phone calls from the abductors. And those phone calls were traceable. Now, this part I might get wrong. I don't know if it was feet or meters. But those phone calls, had they been picked up by authorities on Aaron's phone, would have been traceable within 200 feet or 200 meters of the exact location where Denise was being held captive. So if the phone had not been placed on airplane mode and they would have gotten those calls that Aaron said were going to be coming in on his phone, they would have been able to trace essentially where uh, Denise was being held captive. And Denise says later in the documentary, they may have prevented the second rape. They may have if they would have done their job. Matthew Muller ends up pleading guilty in 2017 to abducting Denise Huskins. And I have a lot of final thoughts on this case and this documentary. I'm not really sure why Mueller, you know, kept saying that this abduction was meant for Andrea. I think it's as simple as Andrea probably used to live with Aaron. And that's when Mueller started casing the house and got his sights set on Andrea. But then Andrea cheated on Aaron and he started dating Denise. And maybe Matthew Mueller didn't really know. He thought that Andrea was still living at the house or going to the house. So when he got there and realized it was somebody else, he's like, well, I guess I'll just take Denise. I mean, it's really sad, but um, yeah, that's all I can think of as far as why he wanted Andrea specifically. And the way that Matthew Muller kept referring to himself as we, we are a group of acquaintances. We are this, me and my associates. It reminded me, you know, he said like, we are a black market company. It reminded me a lot of the JonBenet Ramsey case because in the ransom note by the intruder written, we think by the intruder, the intruder writes something like, we are a foreign faction of da, 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 da. So that intruder in JonBenet Ramsey's case also referred to themselves in the plural form, like we are a group. When, you know, in reality, we know that Matthew Muller probably, he worked mostly alone. It wasn't some group of people, I don't think. I think it was just him, but maybe he's trying to throw people off and make it sound like it's a group of people. I think the same thing happened in JonBenet Ramsey's case. I don't think it was a faction of anybody, a foreign faction. I think it was one person 
who did these horrible acts to John Bene Ramsey. But it just, I couldn't help but draw a parallel between the two cases because the perpetrator's trying to throw people off, maybe, by referring to themselves as a group of people when in reality it's one person. Now, that said, Denise did say she overheard what sounded like a somewhat heated conversation between her abductor, which we later found out was Matthew Muller, and his associates at the captivity house. Now, maybe there weren't other people. Maybe he made it sound like there were other people. And then he came in and said, oh, I have bad news. My associates told me I have to basically rape you again. I think that was just his way of like blaming it on somebody else for the horrible act he was about to commit. I, I, I think he acted alone. I don't think that he had any associates that came to the house. I don't think that, uh, that happened. And it also reminded me that stranger than fiction things do happen. I get it that their story sounded far-fetched, but no matter how far-fetched a story sounds, law enforcement has a sworn duty to investigate it to the umpth degree until they can determine whether it is a lie or it's not a lie. And I don't think law enforcement did that. And they didn't do anybody any favors. And there you know, were other victims or could have been other victims because of their lack of action in this case. There's also consequences, you know, to Denise and Aaron. Like, you know, did they lose their jobs over this? Certainly the whole world hated them and were sending them death threats because of police not believing them and blaming them publicly for this whole thing, when in reality it was never their fault. They were victims. Matthew Muller was sentenced to 40 years for kidnapping, robbery, and rape. He was never charged with crimes in Palo Alto and Mountain View um, or any of the peeping Tom incidents on Mare Island. And I know I didn't go into it earlier in my recap, but um, he was connected to some crimes in Palo Alto and Mountain View. So, but he was never charged and he was also never charged as the Mare Island Creeper. And again, this peeping Tom name needs to change. I mean, maybe we need to call them pre-rapists or I don't know, but I do know for a fact that if somebody is peering inside your home, hiding behind a bush and doing these things, this is alarming behavior. It's not funny. It's not light. It's not a soft crime. It is a red flag for what is probably about to come later, which is probably sexual assault or worse. It, we need to call it something else because Peeping Tom just sounds so innocent and it's not. In 2016, Denise and Aaron sue the city of Vallejo for defamation good for them. During the civil case, an anonymous tip comes in regarding Andrew Badu. He was the chief of police in Vallejo. I guess a pr this anonymous tipster says that prior to the Vallejo Police Department holding that angry, vengeful press conference where they uh, accuse Denise of being like the real life gone girl and all of this being a hoax, this tipster says that the chief of Vallejo police, Andrew Badu, went, told Park, Park was the guy who held the press conference on behalf of the Vallejo PD. Before the press conference, Badu apparently goes up to him and says, basically, burn that bitch. So they were angry at Denise and he's like, burn that bitch. And that makes so much sense to me because I kept thinking like, this guy Park seems really pissed off and angry and just rage filled and vengeful against Denise in this press conference. And that would make sense that he was gassed up by the chief of police, allegedly, who allegedly said, burn that bitch, like go get her, uh, unleash the dogs. And of course, all I can think in this moment is why the fuck do people hate women so much? Like why, why do people hate women so much? I feel like sometimes men hate women and women hate women. Like we almost can't wait for an opportunity to not believe a woman, to drag a woman, to criticize a woman, to be mean to a woman, to, and I'm trying not to get on my soapbox about this, but it just is like, burn that bitch. Really? Like you're, you're that, like you just don't give a fuck about Denise Huskins at all. You told your guy to burn that bitch. Allegedly. It just, why do people hate women so much? No Vallejo officers involved in Aaron Denise's uh, case were disciplined. 
Shocker. And the lead detective, Matt Mustard Breath Must Be a Turd, was awarded Officer of the Year in 2015 when this Gone Girl case all went down. I tell you, if that ain't a good old boys club, I don't know what is. Denise and Aaron end up settling out of court for their civil case for $2.5 million. And I think they deserve that and then some. Missy or Misty Caruso, that dogged female detective um, that pieced everything together and made sure that Denise had, you know, was validated in her story. Um, she asks, she requests to meet Denise and Aaron and she gets to meet them and Denise calls her her hero. And I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Like good on you, Caruso, for doing everything that you did in this investigation, for never giving up, for believing Denise, for validating Denise and for standing up for sexual assault victims and women and just justice. I love the ending of this. You know, Denise and Aaron end up getting married. They move to the coast. They have a daughter named Olivia in 2020. Shortly after that, they had another baby girl. And it seems like they are happy, they're healthy, they're safe, and they are, you know, moving on with their lives. And my final thoughts on this are believe women, stop the violence toward women, and not all rapes cause injury. And not all rapes, in fact, most of them are not going to have physical, you know, easily provable evidence. You need to listen to the victim, you need to be educated, and you need to investigate. All right, everybody, make sure you are subscribed to my YouTube channel. I'm at Jamie on air so you don't miss any new videos or episodes. Make sure you're following my podcast, Murderish. It's available wherever podcasts are available because as you probably know by now, all of these serial streamers episodes are not only on my YouTube channel, but they are also on my podcast, Murderish. Two to three times a month, I release a new episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for watching. I always appreciate you guys. And I am having so much fun despite some of these stories being very dark. I'm having a lot of fun interacting with all of you on social media. Your comments and questions and theories and wisecracks sometimes are just like the best. And it's it's allowing me to get to know you all, anybody who follows my work, supports my work, you know, listens to my podcast, watches my YouTube videos, follows me on social media. It's allowing me to get to know you guys better. I see a lot of the same names popping up over and over. You guys know who you are. I appreciate you. Keep the comments and the wisecracks coming. I love it. But make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel so you don't miss any new videos. I do recaps of these true crime docs a couple times a month. Also, make sure you are following or subscribe to my podcast, Murderish. It's available wherever podcasts are available. And remember, cults are stupid. Ted Bundy's ugly. Scammers suck at life. And binging true crime documentaries is self-care. And do not let anybody tell you different. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.